Hello, welcome to the Do Podcasts with me, Gav Thompson. So what are the Do Lectures? In short, it is an ideas sharing event set up in Wales in 2007 by David and Claire Hyatt with a simple brief to inspire and encourage people. Since those early days, the Do has grown to have had over 150 million views of their lectures online and has been nominated as one of the best ideas festivals in the world by both The Guardian and The Sunday Times and The Seth Godin and it is still run out of a chicken shed in Cardigan Bay, Wales. Season one of the Do Podcasts is all about the story behind the person and the person behind the story. So what is my story? Briefly, I worked for 13 years in advertising agencies in London, New York and Sydney, during which time I was fortunate enough to work with David Hyatt. And I've since had a reasonably successful 13-year career working in marketing, initially for O2, and since then I've been the CMO for Paddy Power, Yopa, and Bowden. My proudest career moment was being the founder of the rather fantastic mobile phone network, GifGaf. More details of the rest of my story can be seen in my own Do Lecture from 2012. This year, like many people, I found myself unemployed, so David, Claire and I hatched a plan that rather than getting negative during COVID, I would do something positive, which is this, the Do Lectures podcast. Series 1, Episode 3, Bouncing Back with Helen Calcroft. So welcome to the next episode of the Do Podcasts with me, Gav Thompson. Today we're talking about Bouncing Back with Helen Calcroft. As you will have just have heard, the Do Podcasts are all about the person behind the story and the story behind the person. Helen has a fantastic story. She's an amazing entrepreneur. She's an amazing female entrepreneur in the male-dominated world of advertising. She is a single mum to Not One, but two amazing girls. She is the founder of Not One, but two leading ad agencies. And she has had cancer not once, but twice. Welcome, Helen Calcroft. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for talking to me. And my first question is, where did you learn about resilience and bouncing back? I mean, I had such a kind of happy and straightforward and lovely childhood. I don't think resilience really was part of my upbringing. I guess I learned something about the ability to bounce back after failure when I really did a lot of acting in my younger years. And I do think there's something about learning the craft of acting where you have to be a bit fearless. You have to be prepared to make a fool of yourself to fail and to come back whether that's doing auditions or whether it's putting yourself out there in improv or trying a line a different way, there's something about the skill of acting that I think translates into a broader part of life where you just have to accept failure and coming back from it. So did you ever consider a professional career in acting? Yeah, I mean, I I always wanted to be an actress from the age of five when I was first asked to play Alice in Wonderland in the primary school production of Alice in Wonderland. I I played Alice. And from that time, right through to the end of university, I had always thought that I was going to be an actress. And what made you Um, decide that you weren't? And I think, I mean, it was a number of things, really, but I guess there was one particular production that I did, which was Betrayal by Harold Pinter. And our director on this production uh, got us very heavily into method acting. And rather than really loving it, I found that after I'd finished that particular run of that show, I felt completely spent, like I had nothing to give to my 
boyfriend at the time to my friends and family. And something in me just felt, actually, I think the price is very, very high if you want to pursue an acting career. And you have to almost need to do it rather than want to do it because it's so difficult. If we talk about resilience and the ability to bounce back, ironically, I didn't feel I had enough resilience to pursue an acting career having done that. Okay, so you then decided to do what? I always joke about this, but I went to the careers library back at my old university and there was accountancy and then the second in the uh, on the bookshelf was advertising. Oh, right. <laughs> and I okay. thought, so you're I'm doing definitely not going to be right. an accountant. And I looked into advertising and I somehow felt... There's a level of creativity, which, you know, and obviously acting and that sort of you know, part of my life, I've done a lot of music and I felt that I was a creative person, but it was also business. And it appealed to me because of, you know, marrying those two things, got myself onto a graduate trainee scheme or two. Right. And luckily I met the wonderful man, Peter Mead who I had a cup of tea with. Our old And our he old said, Helen, yeah. you don't want to go anywhere else. You want to come here to AMV. We'll look after you. And I started my career in advertising based on that cup of tea with Peter Mead. And I was very, very lucky to spend a decade there. Graduate trainee through to one tiny boast, the youngest woman they'd ever put on the board at 28. And I was very lucky to fall into a career that I absolutely loved. And I truly still love today, as you know. I remember you as just been fantastically scary you, ah. had, you had a lot of blonde hair and a oh lot my of God. energy and I was that's so <laughs> not funny for the first time you've in my never life. told me that no, I know I know because 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 <laughs> I've been your client many times and I don't want you to think that your client's scared of you but I was scared of you you were very impressive and ballsy were you conscious of that or was that just Helen in work mode oh I really strongly believe that it's important to be authentically yourself and be the same person that you are at home as you are at work. And I know there's lots of people who talk about your personal brand and how to build your work persona and all of those sorts of things. But for me, I've always felt you should be the same person if you're sitting at your desk or at your kitchen table. So I definitely didn't have a work persona. I think probably at that point... You get to become, an, it's this kind of funny thing, you're a graduate trainee where basically your job is to be a scummy person running around, sharpening pencils and pouring yeah. coffee. But probably by five years in, you think, I've got the promotion. I've cracked this. I've cracked it. Yeah. It's going to be okay. Yeah. And maybe I was at that sort of moment where I finally felt that I had a voice when, when you first joined, because I think the first two or three years in advertising, you just have to, yeah, you've got to be quiet and learn up, yeah. and you feel as though you haven't got much to give. That said, I always say, and I've always said this throughout my career, I think that AMV, the founders, Abbott, Mead and Vickers, were truly liberated men. I I think they were truly liberal and liberated as leaders. And I never felt for a moment that being a woman would be an obstacle to me being promoted and being the best I could be and being believed in. So there's a context there, which is three... Founders, And then I would add Michael Bork to that as well, the chief exec in our time, who were men who were probably quite far ahead of their time in their view of men and women. And, you know, there was a moment where we had a female chief exec, a female MD and a female head of new business. And I don't think there was an agency in London at that time that had that feminist viewpoint. So the context for that is that the founders, I think, set the tone for the industry, not just for the agency. But of course, this was a different time. I mean, Friday afternoon, you know, one would expect to go to the pub at midday and not come back. 
Champagne yes. would be opened. And, and somehow we kind of felt it was what you did and it was part of your job. And of course, now when we all sit at our desks for 15 minutes for a pea and mint soup from Pret-a-Manger at mm. best, feels like another world, doesn't it? This idea, this kind of slight looseness of the industry. And then, of course, I think there, there was a big difference in how women were treated, if not how their careers were treated. And I look back on that and think, you know, I probably had a tremendous privilege because I was part of a cohort of women who were considered to be a bit more glamorous. Yeah. And it has got me, I mean, particularly with the explosion of Black Lives Matter and all the questions we're asking ourselves around D&I, there was probably very little racial inclusion. Although there was a pretty good male-female inclusion, what would it be like to be a woman who didn't conform to a particular physical type? Yeah. What would it be to be a person from a background that wasn't middle class? I mean, all of these things I think we slept walked through. We thought we were in normal. And Gav, you know, because you've known me a long time, that I had a, a period in my career there where I suffered a pretty bad period of sexual harassment. Yes, you did. To the point that I, and I never felt confident enough to speak up. So you speak of me as this person when you joined, as this confident person. Two or three years before that, I was being harassed daily and bullied daily and treated in a pretty unspeakable way looking back on it. Uh, this man said, called me into his office and said, if you want to be promoted to account director, you have to cut your hair because you come into work in the morning looking freshly fucked and it is very disconcerting and it puts the men off doing their work. And that absolutely scarred me. I did not find the courage to speak up and, you know, definitely shaped my personality, my views of feminism and my life going forward. So although the culture was not one where women were harassed. There was an individual who really singled me out for a substantial period of time. I used to cry in the evenings. I used to not want to get up and go to work in the mornings. I did not have the confidence to tell anyone. And it wasn't until I resigned that Michael Bork, the chief exec, looked at me and said, this makes no sense. What are you doing? You're the golden girl here. We all rate you. We like you. And I just collapsed in a puddle of tears. And he eventually extracted what had been going on mm. out of me, although I never told him more than 20% of it. Yeah. So, you know... Do you regret um, not calling it out at the time now, looking back on it? Well, I think when you're 23 and you're being harassed by someone in a position of power who controls the ability to hire, fire, promote and give you pay rises, it's very, very difficult. So, as you also know, I've been heavily involved with the industry the Time 2 initiative, which has been about trying to eradicate sexual harassment from the industry, and I'm spending a lot of my time on that today, and that's my way of giving back. I still believe, even today, that for young people, when they're dealing with any form of discrimination from someone senior, it's very, very hard to speak up. So you're at AMV. Yes. You, you are the youngest ever female director on the board. But then... You decided to leave. And not only decided to leave, you decided to leave with three of your colleagues and set up an agency. Tell me about that. Sure. So I come from a family of academics, of Oxford University academics, and I was slightly the black sheep of this family. And I did a drama degree, as I mentioned earlier. And there was a bit of me all the way through the first sort of 10 years of my advertising career that felt 
underconfident, not clever enough, not good enough, not somehow educated enough. And I, I decided I wanted to do an MBA and have that ability to have a slightly different conversation with my clients to really understand their business better and to give myself the confidence as a young woman to walk into the office of a mostly male client, MD or chief exec, and not just be charming and be good at advertising, but actually be productive in my conversation. And you were, that was, how old were you when you did that? I did that at 29, 30. Still at AMV? Or this is so uh, I did it part-time at AMV, right. but as I was returning, and it does change you doing an MBA, there are some kind of, it is quite a transformative experience, but literally as I was returning to full-time work, my first boss at AMV and my best friend at the agency, Jeremy Miles, came into my office and said, hello, do you want to start an agency? In his Terry Thomas voice. And I literally just said, yeah. Yeah. And literally six weeks later, we were gone. So it was very, very quick. And of course, I joined Paul and Malcolm and Jeremy, who were all much more experienced than me and a good decade older than me as the kind of junior, very lucky, feeling very lucky partner into that agency. But I was immensely lucky to be a founding partner of an agency at 32. One could look at the lineup of the four of you. You could either go, that's amazing. You've got these three older senior men and this unbelievably young, talented woman. That's very magnanimous and well done. Or you could have said, and I don't know if anyone ever did say this, you've got these three older senior men and they've got the young... Oh, they did. Blonde, Absolutely. You know, of course. I mean, I look a bit stuff. like a stereotype. Yeah. I look how like the, did, how the, did you deal with that? Well, of course, my nickname, as you may or may not know, was Dolly. Do- <laughs> as in? That was my nickname. So was it, by, are by you the par- Dolly? You by your partners? Or? By my partners. And so, but, you know, a lot of people assume that was, you know, a Dolly. So we need a Dolly in the lineup. Yeah. Because that's modern. Yeah, I mean, it could be. Yeah, but totally, actually, totally, Jeremy gave totally me the name right. because he wanted to clone me, so <laughs> he did know. it from Dolly the Sheep. But of course, uh, a lot of other people thought, "Oh, you're the Dolly in the you're lineup." The, you're just the Dolly, uh-huh. right? But then, of course, you know, then they meet me. So MCBD, amazing agency, very successful. You're having a brilliant time. How did it all end? So we were acquired by a Canadian communications company, a company called Cassette. We didn't go looking for them, but they came looking for us. So we did that deal. We did the earnout, And towards the end of the earnout, the suggestion was made that we merge with another company that they had acquired, which was Dare. And we thought this was the most thrilling, exciting, avant-garde idea ever. Take a great digital agency that had been digital agency of the decade, fabulous creativity and marry it with the brand and above the line agency and you're going to have magic. And it was an unmitigated disaster. And literally we had 120 staff and within one year, 115 of them had left from the original MCBD. And I was asked to leave after the first three months. I went to see the private equity bosses and said, you've got 11 people managing this company there aren't 11 people running America. Pick any four. And they didn't pick me. So as a golden girl, I suffered massive humiliation of being told, we don't have trust and confidence in you to run this company. And we'd like you to stay on but have no responsibility. I mean, obviously, ego and pride aside, you would obviously earned your own out from MCBD. You banked all that. So in some ways, it doesn't really matter. It's more pride, ego. You know, they've told you to jog on. I think it's also, though, you, I felt 
an immense responsibility for the unhappiness of all the people in that merger. So it isn't just pride and ego, it is that sense of failing other people. You've led this them was into an this ill-conceived mess. merger. We led them in with all yeah. optimism. Yeah. And then they were all, I mean, everybody in that company was miserable. And I felt pretty devastated by that. And I stayed on to try and keep some of the clients in the business, but I felt humiliated and I felt a huge sense of failure. Okay, so you leave with the tail between your legs to some extent. But, you know, you've also been a successful entrepreneur. You've done the thing every founder agency wants to do. You've sold. You've done your own that. You've made some money. some degree, you've been an amazing success, but the, it ended badly. And then you decided to do it all over again. Mm-hmm. Why? So I left the industry for about a year. So I was on a... I wasn't able to work in the industry when I left. I had one of those terrible contracts that meant I couldn't do anything at all. And I did some marketing consultancy and I loved it, actually. I really loved it. I worked in America as well as here, look at brands more holistically, and I really did quite enjoy it. Although I found the life of a consultant to be quite solitary. And I also found that I really love, I mean, I didn't know this, but I missed making creative work. I missed having something physical and tangible at the end of a process that I could call my own. And I had no intention of going back into advertising and definitely no intention of starting an agency. But it was my birthday and my two closest friends in the industry said, would you like to go for lunch at the Wolseley? And neither of them are particularly big drinkers. And we were on our third bottle of wine by about quarter to two. And I thought, what's happening? And they just said, look, would you like to start an agency? It's Danny Brooke-Taylor and Andy Nairn, who are my co-founding partners at Lucky Generals. And the three of us had talked a lot about starting an agency together, but I'd sort of let go of it. So they just kind of brought it back onto the table and we just thought, yeah, let's do it. So it was again, a relatively spontaneous alcohol fueled. They had definitely planned to have the conversation to say, look, come back. They had planned it for sure. And it's not like we hadn't spoken about it, but I'd sort of thought that it had been let go. But surely Um, some of your close family and friends outside of the industry would have gone, that's bonkers. We've just seen you go through this horrific roller coaster that ended badly. Yes. You have made some money, so that's in the bank. You don't need to do it again. Yeah. What are you smoking? They did. And a lot of my friends and family thought exactly that. And obviously I'd been ill and they were like, why would you do it? And I think my simple answer to that is I definitely wouldn't have done it if it wasn't with those two people who I love, admire and adore. And I knew that if I started a business with them, that we would have the most fulfilling and wonderful time. And there was definite sense of the three of us having unfinished business because our partnership had just really formed at the start of the merger. And we'd suffered this terrible indignity and, you know, terrible sense of failure. And I think we all felt we had something to prove and we had unfinished business. So Lucky Generals has been an amazing success. Thank it, you. it really has. Thank I mean, you. It's, you know that. I know that. I've been lucky enough to be a client of yours a few times. You've famously been runner-up of Agents of the Year three years in a row, which yes. is unheard of. You've been a brilliant success. You, you, and then you were bought out by TBWA pretty early on in your yes. time. Why don't you just give us your perspective on how it's been so successful so far? I think starting a business with people that you love, admire, and adore is really important. I think for anyone who comes to work at Lucky Generals or with Lucky Generals sees that chemistry and that mutual respect. And I think then your focus is not on your relationships, it's on doing the work. And we're all excited by the same things and we have the same values. And I think if we've had success, it's because of that effortless sense of shared 
beliefs and shared values as a trio and just loving the work. You know, we all three still, we're not cynical. We still get excited about new ideas. When ideas finally make it, you know, into the consumer world, we still love that. We didn't do it in order to make money and to sell it. We did it because we thought we would do something special. And I think that's driven the business. But I would also say probably for me personally, you know, my failures, but also my learnings of things done wrong at MCBD at my previous agency have been a catalyst to success and to, you know, you learn how not to do things from your failures and your mistakes. I've been able to bring that thinking and that experience and that learning and that resilience into Lucky General. So a classic example was when we started MCBD, we took on P&O Cruises, which is a fabulous client and great brand, but the sort of brand that's very conservative and very, it says something about your brand. We were offered something similar at Lucky Generals and we held out until Paddy Power came along and we were able to show what we could do on our best day with the most creative client. I think I probably helped because of the troubles and failures in my previous life, I was able to give us the confidence to hold out for that. So you were bouncing back, you were being resilient and you were taking the lessons of the past and applying them to the team and the future. Yes. But also, I think, you know, when you when you suffer an indignity and it's quite public, part of bouncing yeah. back is feeling like you have something to prove to yourself and to others. And I'm not sure that Lucky Generals would be as successful if Dare hadn't been such a failure. Because you all went through that. You yes, we did. So we all three, three went through it. But again, I, I, I wasn't part of that. I didn't see that experience. And I, I guess knowing Andy and Danny, you've all, you all been resilient. You're all bouncing back. You all go, that was a freaking disaster. You probably more in the feeling it more because, you know, your name is above the door. So you were all bouncing back with Lucky Journal. I think so. I think so. And you've been very lucky, very successful. The harder you work, the luckier you're going to get, Gav. And in my 13 years as a client, I don't think anyone's ever given me as big a bollocking as you did. Oh, no. Uh, around this particular episode, which oh. you may remember. So just to get everyone up to speed, I was a client on a pretty famous brand, we had to launch a new campaign. We, I think we even booked the airtime. The, the campaign was launched. And at the 11th hour, the talent pulled out. The, we, the campaign was written around this particular talent. And at the 11th hour, he said, I don't want to do it. It was a week before Christmas. I was actually, it was a Friday. I was at a Christmas lunch, having a lovely time. And I found out the talent pulled out. And I said to one of my team, call Helen and tell her, just again as an aside, we, we were doing a campaign on the brief for the agency. It was kind of annoying. We'd said... We want it to be a bit like this campaign, very yes. famous campaign, campaign Y, okay? And we'd said, we want to put this campaign. And everyone knew that, so that's fine. And it transpired that the guy that had written campaign Y, creative director X, was actually currently freelancing, was in the market, and I knew about this. And I'd heard this that the week before. And I said slightly flippantly to my team member, just call Helen and say, the shit's about to hit the fan, the talent's pulled out. We need to possibly hire Creative Director X to help Lucky Generals come up with an idea. And I put the phone down, carried on having my lunch. <laughs> and then about three o'clock, you know, I was just on the desserts and the phone went and it was you and you were <laughs> screaming at me down the phone, like, giving me the hairdryer treatment. I was in this restaurant, everyone was staring at me and I was holding the phone away from my ear, cartoon style, going, sorry, sorry, sorry. And it, was, it would have been weird if, had it not been the fact that I was the client you were going to see. And you were yelling at me uh, and swearing. And, I was. And saying, <laughs> Lucky Jones will never do that. That's a terrible idea. You can fuck off. 
<laughs> and we got through that, didn't we? Of course we did. Of but that, we you did. know, I mean, I guess, look, never underestimate Helen, right? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I feel like I should apologise. Was, it was a very stressful day and a line, in my view, had been crossed. That's and a it terrible hadn't been crossed, thing it to say. It had been bludgeoned. It was a terrible <laughs> thing for me to do, to go flippantly. I didn't even tell you myself. I said, oh, we'll hire this other correct guy to help you on along your way. And it, yeah. was, it was very presumptuous, so no, I apologise. I, no, I apologise. And I think, well, it was quite an interesting um, day for so many reasons. But I think that, again, on this sort of theme of bouncing back and learning and coming back from things that have been bad, there have been moments in my career where you think I'm an account handler and my job is to make the client happy. And actually your job as a senior account handler and as a principal as an, of an agency is to help do the right thing. 100%. And it's very easy when you're in this sort of job called client service to say, yes, what would you like? But I knew at that moment that if we had done that, it would compromise our principles. It would throw the agency culture. And it, I, it was a horrible... You know, it was the wrong thing. It was the wrong thing. It was but a really I, crappy idea. And I'd be good for you to call it out. No, but it, you, you were so good because no one else would have allowed me to lose no, my that, temper that, and No, you really... Like I mean, that. literally, I've been a client for 13 years. No one's ever... No agency's ever call me out like that but it was but I guess call. and I guess I'm a bit of a lioness when it comes to the agency well you back your principles which is a good <laughs> thing okay so I'm we're going to park your very successful career here because in itself that's an amazing story you founded two agencies been very successful as a female entrepreneur but for me the thing that's most interesting for you and I think the thing that our listeners will find most interesting is actually in your personal life and two bits of it really, they're kind of strung together with health or lack of it. And they are, there's two different bits to it. So why don't you tell us the story about your second pregnancy, but give us some context about, you know, pregnancy in general. Sure. So I got married very young. I got married at 23, which was pretty young, even in that generation. And my husband and I were trying for kids for about five years. And I, I always knew I wanted a family and I always knew I wanted to try and have a family quite young. But after five years of trying and a whole journey on fertility, which those listeners who have ever gone through, it's almost impossible to understand the impact of not being able to have a baby when you really, really want one. But you go on a kind of terribly difficult emotional journey. And I got to about 29, just before we started MCBD 30, where the doctors I'd been seeing said, look, you are never going to get pregnant. You have so many multiple fertility issues, me personally, that your probably best option is to look at adoption. So just at the time when Jeremy said, do you want to start an agency? There was a big bit of me that wanted to do that because I wanted to throw myself into something to counteract the grief of not being able to have kids. So we started the agency and then a good friend of mine said, look, there's this amazing doctor He's called Dr. Taranisi. Just go and see him and talk about your issues because maybe the doctor you've been seeing isn't right and maybe IVF is worth a go. So fast forward to meeting this incredible, innovative man who was absolutely extraordinary in, in the work that he did, you know, driving the success rates of IVF. 
in a way, the worst possible timing. I got pregnant with my first daughter when the company was five months in. So MCBD. And I remember sitting down That's, with Paul and Malcolm really, and Jeremy really going, yeah. I'm really sorry, I'm pregnant. They're like, you said you couldn't get pregnant. And so, you know, <laughs> literally <laughs> we sort of started the business and then I had my first daughter, Rosa, and kind of made that work. And then my husband and I said, look, given it's been so hard to get pregnant, let's go again quite quickly. And I got fortunately pregnant with Maya quite quickly. So I got pregnant with Maya and we decided to go to South Africa on holiday. I was about four and a half, five months pregnant. So in that lovely window where you're not being sick and you're safe to travel. You can still fly, yeah. And we went to Cape Town with Rosa, who was, you know, six months at the time. And I started to feel very ill in Cape Town. And we went to the top hospital in Cape Town and the doctor there said, I'm really sorry, but the baby's died inside your womb. And obviously that was completely devastating given my, you know, seven year journey to get pregnant in the first place. And then she said, look, you can't really get on a plane with a four and a half month fetus because you're, you know, you're likely to hemorrhage or be very, very ill on a long haul flight. So we need to do what's called a DNC, which is, you know, the same procedure as an abortion to make sure that everything is cleaned out so you don't hemorrhage. So there I was on holiday in shock, having to have this DNC and get on the plane the next day. Um, really, really grieved the loss of my daughter, hit the red wine, had the first pack of cigarettes for about a decade, you know, just kind of felt really, really low about losing uh, my daughter so late in the pregnancy. So you went, you went, went back straight to back to work. Yes. Went nuts on the fags, yep. nuts on the booze. Yeah. Obviously, incredibly upset and, yes. and tormented about losing and feeling I may not have another, another chance. One, you know, five months. I mean, yeah. it's horrific. I mean, I, I, I know women yeah. have gone through that. It's a horrific experience. But you bounced back. You bounced I, back into work. I bounced work. back into work. I felt super grateful to have known what it's like to be a mother, and that was always the most important thing. And you know, adore my daughter Rosa. And about four weeks later, Jeremy, my partner, said to me, "If I didn't know better, Helen, I would say." you're still pregnant because my stomach was growing and I got really annoyed with him. How could you be so insensitive? And yeah, that's uh, quite a ballsy but, thing but to something say, in me said, maybe I, maybe there's something wrong here. I should go and see Dr. Taranisi and just have a scan and make sure that I haven't got some problems associated with the DNC. So I went to see him and he just went into a state of shock and said, your baby is still inside your womb. Which is so So the baby that I'd been told had died and then had been aborted was still alive. But by that point, very, very tenuous pregnancy. I had preeclampsia, you know, and I was pretty ill. How how far were you? So by that time I was about twenty four weeks. So But you you thought you'd had a miscarriage at twenty weeks. About twenty weeks. Twenty weeks, right. Exactly. And then I was just very, very ill from there on in. And I was taken to the hospital one evening and they said, look, the best thing is to terminate the pregnancy because you're very ill. And of course, by this time I'm going, this little baby shouldn't be here because she's IVF, shouldn't be here because she was diagnosed as dead and then aborted. I'm not aborting her now. So I checked myself out of hospital and I I definitely was hormonally completely crazy. But I sat at home and without being too graphic, you know, bleeding yeah. all the time. Yeah. And I refused to go to the doctor. I refused to go to the hospital. Oh my gosh. And I sat at home and my husband outcome. was despairing of me. And eventually I held on for another two weeks. I got to 27 and a half weeks where a 28 babies tend to be viable. 
and I gave birth. But that night I was told by the doctors I was 12 hours away from dying because I hadn't gone to hospital with all the problems. Because of all the hemorrhaging and blood loss and stuff. So I nearly died. She was born with a 50-50 chance of survival. At at 27, 28 weeks. At 27 and a half weeks. Having already been terminated. But there she was. You know, there she was. Tiny, tiny, tiny baby. And then I spent three months, you know, on the floor of St. Mary's, going home during the day to see my nine-month-old or seven-month-old, how old she was, and just kind of somehow getting through that. And it was the most extraordinarily traumatic and horrific experience, really. But I just was dogged and also reckless in my determination that this child was going to make it. Which she did and has and has had an amazing 18-year life. She just turned 18 and she just got four A-stars in her A-levels. She did, which is unbelievable. (laughs) So it was worth it. But I very nearly died. As if that wasn't enough... This was also the period when your marriage was yeah. breaking up. And yeah, so you and your I, you know, split up, right? My ex-husband and I are the best friends in the world, but it was a very tough period, and he left very shortly after Maya came home from hospital. So I found myself a single mum with a 15-month-old and a very, very ill, premature baby, and a business that needed me. So it was a lot. <laughs> it was that's a lot. why. Listeners, I think Helen is a good example of bouncing back and resilience. But there's more. So you then, you're a single mum. You've got two kids under the age of 18 months. Yeah. One of whom's amazingly premature. You've nearly died. You've just started a business. You and your husband split up. And then you get dealt even more craziness down the line. Tell us about that. And that was, you know, it was an extraordinary time. And my obstetrician has written a chapter about me in his book because he said he's never heard of. It is literally unbelievable. A baby that's been aborted that survives and then is born under those circumstances and survives again. It's it's unheard of. To to be so healthy and amazing and, you know, like there's no damage. Nothing happened, right? She's fantastic. She is fantastic. So... And then, you know, the girls have grown up. They're the absolute light of my life. But, you know, very sadly for me in 2008, just as the agency was, you know, really doing wonderfully well, I got diagnosed with breast cancer. And again, one of those extraordinary things. So I went to Danny, my now partner at Lucky Generals, treated himself to a a physical, a whole MOT for his 40th birthday. And I was a bit like... Why didn't I do that? I should have done that. It's really annoying. It's a really good idea to buy yourself a physical. And I'm a bit older than him. So I went to see my doctor and went through a physical. And he said to me, look, you're 42, whatever I was at the time. Have you got breast cancer in the family? I said, no. He said, have you got any aunts who've had breast cancer? I said, two. And he said, well, look, you probably don't know this, but if you've got it on your maternal side, if you have breast cancer, your chances of getting it are significantly elevated. You seem in the peak of health, but why don't we just get you a mammogram early? Most women start at 46, 47, 48. Let's just give you a mammogram every year or two, starting now. And I was like, I've got to go to a meeting. I haven't got time. He's like, I know you. Get your ass up to Princess Grace and go and do the mammogram now because you won't do it otherwise. And I went and five days later, I was in theatre. So they found breast cancer. That's a lucky intervention. A fluky intervention. But it was pretty devastating. I had no symptoms, no lumps. The breast cancer was at the very back of my chest wall. And my oncologist said, look, you probably wouldn't have found it. You wouldn't have exhibited symptoms before it was too late because of where it was positioned. So again, this weird 
bad luck, good luck sort of stories in my life of the worst luck to get cancer at 42, the best luck that I went for. You know what I mean? It's sort of weird. So I had about five months of treatment, had the operation, had radiotherapy. At a young age and as a single mum, it's pretty traumatic having cancer. Yeah. And you know, Gav, and you and I I, talked about it a lot. I know. I've had cancer myself aged 37, I think I was. I've recovered and it's horrible. Uh, The ground is taken beneath your feet because at a young age, you don't consider yourself a candidate for life-threatening disease. No, you think you're invincible and and particularly yourself, to a lesser extent me, being quite successful in life, generally in control of my own destiny, to have something like that happen to you, you can feel a victim or I think as you and I both did, you go, we're going to fight this. In the top trumps of cancer, you definitely trumped me, right? I I never had radio, never had chemo. I was sort of in and out. Well, not in and out, that's a lie. It took a few years. But you went through pretty intense radiotherapy. Yes, and I made a really, the first time, I didn't have chemo the first time, but I made a really kind of, I don't know if it was a big mistake, but I think it was a mistake in my desire to bounce back and to be okay for everybody. So my big driver at that time was, I've got to be okay for my kids, because you can imagine my kids were seven and five. It's just devastating to deal to with to understand single, single it parent has cancer. It's horrible. Um, and I was their moon and stars and we were this kind of girl trio and you know they just that was devastating for them and then I was you know mum to my company yeah. Jeremy had been ill and had left the company at that time and that had already been quite difficult for everybody in MCBD and so I felt this massive need to get back and to be okay And I think that there is a a learning with resilience and bouncing back that if you try to bounce back too fast and too high, you fall. And it was, so I literally, I finished my radio and I went back to work a week later. Which, Which if I look back, completely insane. I mean, mean, and again, there's this horrible thing in cancer world where people go, oh, radio's not a big deal, chemo's, radio is a big deal. It it takes it out of you. But also I think cancer uniquely takes away your confidence in your self and in the world around you. So attempting to go, I'm fine, it's fine, I'm back to work, everything's groovy. I then felt a level of exhaustion for about two years and just tearfulness and a lack of resilience quietly at home and in bed, which I think was not healthy. And And I always advise people now when they're ill and indeed when they're pregnant, take your time. Do yeah. not have this overemphasized need to bounce back for others. Count yourself in that equation. And, and again, I, got that wrong. I think a bit like me with my cancer, you want to overemphasize that you have bounced back and you're fine and you've beaten it and you put in a brave face and you're back in and it really physically plays with you and mentally it's really it's mentally really, more and really I, mental kind of jiu-jitsu right and there is a weird thing with cancer because it touches one in three people most people that you speak to or you cut whether it's clients or friends in a pub or family will know someone and people don't want to hear that you're not okay they want to say you're better now aren't 100%. you 100% you've be- there's always warrior terminology you've beaten it You've Beaten smashed it, you've, it, you've, you've seen it, it off, yeah. you've won the battle. And people need that from you. 
And I've learned, having had cancer a second time around, that you don't need to give people what they need. You need to just be authentic. So you, you did your five years. You were in remission. Yes. So I, I mean, it was a very, the cancer was caught very, very early. I had very minimal surgery in radio. And looking back on it, there's no doubt in my mind I was actually undertreated. Right. And there is a learning with cancer treatment. You could over-treat, but you can also under-treat. So I was all clear for five years. And as anyone who's had cancer knows, the five-year all clear, you start to punch the air and you know that I remember your five-year... I remember... I think I saw you that week or... Yes, you did, because you and I had that in common. And we we were just euphoric. Euphoric, And then you think, I've done it. I'm over it. I'm free and I'm I'm over it. survivor. And then what happened? And then I had my... And you carry on with the one-year tests. And at my seven-year mammogram, and I knew enough to know the look of the radiographer... That kind of sucking the air through the teeth. And what was really devastating is that the cancer came back in the exact same place, but had mutated to something far more deadly. So seven years after my first diagnosis, I was diagnosed with a much more aggressive and deadly form of cancer with absolutely necessary mastectomy and chemo. So that was 2016, October 2016, and that was about two and a half years of treatment. And you'd set up Lucky And Lucky Generals was... You were, you were on fire at Lucky work. Lucky Generals was obviously. on fire. I'd never been happier in my life. But still still single mum, still two teenagers at this yeah. point. Yeah, so the girls and... were a bit older. And I think I have to be careful with the phrase single mum because the girl's dad is phenomenal, present father. And I do think that women, if they're not careful, kind of can wallow in this single mum label. So sure. I did always have Rob. He's a most wonderful, committed and present father. So whilst the girls lived with me all the way through their childhood, I would want to call out and say he was great all the way through. And I had a partner for 15 years too. So, you know, it's not like I was entirely alone. But Lucky Generals was three, flying, happy, but not big enough to cope with one of the founders being taken out of action. And extraordinarily, we signed the deal with TBWA when I was on my third round of chemo. So how was it? I mean, it's such a stupid question, but I'm sure some of the listeners would like to know, you know, second time round, how was it getting it again? Obviously, the treatment's far more aggressive this time. It was devastating. I mean, it was absolutely devastating. And I'll cry if I talk about it too much. Yeah, absolutely devastating. But then you, I took a view, because I was undertreated and it came back, I'm going to do the opposite this time round. Yeah. And I am not having this three times. So where I could have had a single mastectomy, I had a double mastectomy. Where I could have had one kind of chemo, I researched very heavily and got the most difficult to absorb and difficult to bear chemo that nearly took me to a point of being not here Mm. in order to see it off. But that was the most horrendous ordeal. I had 18 rounds of chemo and three operations, one of which was an 11-hour operation. And Andy and Danny were just phenomenal. And they built that company without me. They didn't demur, supported me 100%. But again, you learn that there is no such thing as a, a resilient person. There's just people who are dealt certain hands. And, you know, I, people say, oh, you're so brave. I go, well, not really. I just coped. And I guess if I've done anything, it's to remain positive. So, Helen, what an incredible story of unbelievable adversity, getting dealt some crazy hands, but bouncing back, being very resilient, and also being very successful, very happy, 
And, you know, lots of people look up to you as a, as a role model in both your recovery from cancer, your recovery from some of the stuff you dealt with in your personal life, and being a trailblazing female advertising agency founder. Just impart some advice or wisdom to anyone that is dealing with some tough stuff and is questioning their resilience and ability to bounce back. Oh, I think it's so hard to offer advice to others. And I'm, you know, I'm very humbled by my experience. But what I would say is that life has taught me that bad things happening to you doesn't define your life. And in some ways, rather counterintuitively, it can enrich your life. You know, it teaches you compassion. It teaches you to appreciate the things that really matter. It teaches you to appreciate the people who really stand by you and to really weed out those who let you down and are not there for you and not to expend too much of your energy on people who aren't there for you in the bad times. So I think, you know, there's, there's a wonderful, enriching experience that goes along with dealing with adversity, that you take your time to be precious, that you appreciate those who love you even more and you look for the good in those people and then... You don't worry too much about the people who don't. And I think, you know, as a people pleaser myself, I grew up as such a people pleaser, wanting everyone to like me, wanting everyone to feel good around me. You know, adversity teaches you you can't do that. And actually, you're really wise to put the time into the people who stand by you and love you and love them back. So there's definitely that. And then I think, you know, there is something about, particularly, I think, these near-death experiences that make you... Grateful, And I know everyone talks about mindfulness and gratitude and it's almost become the kind of pop culture, overused, sort of saccharine word gratitude. But I do think, and you will know this as well from your cancer experience, you do look around you and rather than wish for things or rather than resent things, you tend to breathe and say, the sky's beautiful today or... My daughter just smiled at me and it's, there's nothing better. And there's yeah. something, there is the gift that comes with adversity, which is the ability to enjoy and be grateful and live in the moment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I've said, you know, I, I'm actually grateful that I got cancer. Now, as we Yeah, just, well, you and I have both yeah, said both that. Said it's that. completely crazy. It's crazy, it doesn't make any sense. Because I lost, because I mean, we've lost a was, lot of time. It was horrific. And, but I'm grateful for it because it made me a better person. It gave yes. me a better perspective. Yes. Yeah, it made me value the people that were important to me. It gave me a better understanding of time and appreciation of, you know, the life you've got. And I think, you know, made me better at my job, actually. Cause you, you, I totally agree. And I think the other thing it's taught us both is that you are able to look at the whole person. So when someone you're working with might be annoying, irritating, not showing up in a way you would like, you stop a little moment and go, I wonder what else is going on in their world and in their life, rather than just looking at the moment and the behaviour. I think it makes you, it gives you a humility and an ability to show and feel a greater compassion. So in summary, Helen, look, a hell of a story about resilience and bouncing back. Over to you, just final thoughts on, on resilience, really. Gosh, I mean, I guess, you know, I'm 53. I feel like I've got so much of my life to live. I'm hoping I won't have to do too many more bounces back. But I guess that the knocks that I have taken have taught me that you can, the human spirit can withstand a lot. And if you remain positive and if you believe in love and you believe in life, 
there are always going to be ways that you can find your way out of difficult situations. And I always love a particular quote from Carl Jung. He said, I'm not what happened to me. I am what I choose to become. And I love that thought. And I hope that I'm still choosing to become a better version of myself. Helen, thank you so much for being our guest. It's been inspirational and thank you for sharing your stories. Great honour and a great privilege as ever. Thanks, Gav. You've been listening to The Do Podcast with me, Gav Thompson. Thank you for your time. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please do review us and subscribe or email me with any comments. Gav at doletchers.com. The next episode will be along shortly. This podcast was produced by George McDonough with music by James Morton. <laughs>